0: amen good morning you can pull out if you have a copy of the scriptures uh you can pull them out and turn to philippians chapter 4 yes i apologize we are still in philippians i know it's supposed to be christmas We're going to do one more philippians but it's the last of philippians we're going to use it to put a bow on the series christmas so there's some loose connection there but uh really there's just too much here to like skip uh we, we you're gonna feel with me, I hope, some of the strain of trying to push through this stuff so that we can jump into Christmas stuff, but that's how it always is with Scripture. There's always more there uh, than we have time to get to, and, and that's why we encourage you to have a copy of the Scriptures yourself, to be reading this stuff and thinking this stuff and eating this stuff daily, having it give you nourishment. And we're going to give you a copy of the Scriptures if you don't have one yourself. You can also just download one on your phone. We'll have the words on the screen for you, but it's very important for you to be reading and thinking about this stuff. We've been thinking about Philippians for several weeks now, and I hope that you have been trying to ingest it, that you've memorized portions of it, that you've read it outside of our Sunday services. If you're not a believer and you're investigating, in some ways you have to do that even more so that you can see what it is that's being taught or thought, and is it in line with our historic documents that we have. But in Philippians 4 as Paul kind of puts it all together for us in this last chapter, he paints a pretty intense picture because he's given us the example of his life as our example. And he's used himself, Timothy, and Epaphroditus to paint a picture of what it is to be following in Christ's example. To make himself... Nothing in order to bring us something, to to give himself death, that he could give us life. And that's echoed in Paul's life as he goes through and he's giving of himself constantly, of his time, of his money, of his health. He's a very Lottie Moon character as he's giving of himself to bring that to others. And can I say that's what we're called to as well. There's this constant, I mean, I think it happens maybe three times in Philippians where Paul's saying, do like I'm doing here. Join in imitating me. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's a lot. The vision of Hope Church. There's other churches, other visions, but the vision of Hope Church is to make disciples and plant churches. That means that. If you're involving yourself here, we are going to equip you to make disciples and go to plant churches. It's heavy. But what I, I hope to plug in, I think, I hope that you understand that if you're a believer that you have this high calling and yet you are just who you are. And so you look at your life and you look at this high calling and you think, how do I go from here to here? How do I move from A to B? It's impossible. It's impossible. Well, no, it's not. And the sentence you can use to bridge those two sort of points is what Paul says in Philippians, probably the most famous verse in Philippians, Philippians 4.13, where he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Have you heard that verse before? Usually you hear it in athletics. Did you ever hear, and this happened a while ago, but I was like prime basketball time. I was very into basketball when this happened. But do you remember when Kevin Garnett finally won an NBA championship? Nobody? Okay. Well, so he was with the Timberwolves for a long time, and he was outstanding. He's one of the greatest players in the league, and he's never going to win because he's on the Timberwolves. Womp womp. Sorry, Timberwolves fans. Uh, But he was never going to get there. Then, finally, he transfers to Boston, and he's able that very first year in Boston, they win. And he's got the interview right after he has finally won an NBA championship. And this poor woman, you can imagine what it's like to be a regular-sized person trying to interview NBA players. <laughs> so she's like, Kevin Garnett, you did it. You're the defense player of the year of NBA All-Star. How does it feel to finally win? And then he's looking down, you know, like he's having incredible emotional moment. And he's pulling his hat down. You can't even really see his face. And he's sweaty like crazy because he just won. And he's he's trying to communicate what he's feeling and he says anything is possible and then he goes anything is possible and he shouts that out to the world and everybody's kind of happy for him but if you're at home and you're watching it you can feel the goosebumps of it if you know the whole story but if not it just it's a little awkward it's a little too much I don't know if you've ever felt that before, where somebody gets a little too enthusiastic and they get maybe a little weird with it, and you're like, I'm happy for you, but I'm also going to stand over here. When he, Anything is possible! and he does this big shout, you can Google it, it's very fun, uh, you feel it. However, not really what we're talking about here, because Kevin Garnett is seven foot one. He's seven foot one, I'm six foot six. He's with shoes on. him, seven, six foot seven. He's six, seven inches taller than I am. And he looks like good. Usually if you take somebody and expand them to our heights, it's like a, a picture, an image. If you grab from the top and you pull, it distorts the image. You know, When humans get above six foot, uh-oh, you know? and when they get close to seven foot, they just get weird. I've played with guys that are seven foot and they beat me, but they're still, like they kind of look a little awkward. The human body is not really built to get that big. But Kevin Garnett didn't look awkward. He's extremely athletic. He, he was a self-possessed, athletic, seven-foot guy. Is it that crazy that he won an NBA championship? It's impressive, but is it that wild? Kevin Garnett winning the NBA championship does not prove that anything is possible. If Lottie Moon won the NBA championship, you would have to say if a four foot three woman from the 1800s won an NBA the 2007 NBA championship and then screamed, "Anything is possible." It would be her, you know. So her voice would probably be smaller. Anything is possible. You would say, "Wow, anything is po- any, anything is possible." Lottie Moon just won the NBA championship. How do we get to? the kind of Lottie Moon winning the NBA championship statement that makes you say in yourself, in your heart, not out loud, because again, a lot of us affirm this stuff verbally, but that you would say this internally to the point that your life would change because you really do believe that God can do anything through you. Like, Make you a missionary in your neighborhood, see you lead people to Christ to the point that God plants a church in your neighborhood. That fits under the category semantically of anything or all things. How do we get there? How do you get to where you actually believe what Paul's saying here? And Paul puts himself forward as an example because he says that yes, he was very successful when it comes to a structured Jewish understanding of religion, that he did that religion as hard as anybody's ever done it. But he also says that he counts that as lost because what he did in that way led to him persecuting Christians. So he puts himself in the Lottie Moon category of the most unexpected, not only of converts, but of evangelists and apostles to the people of this sort of Jewish spread out all over the world, and then even the Gentiles. And yet, through him, God did something phenomenal. And it's all throughout this book. The encouraging words that we need are all throughout this book. But Paul, he, he shrouds around that anything is possible sentence by saying, I'm not speaking of being in need. I've, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Now, <laughs> it's kind of crazy to think. But The events that took place for Philippians, Philippians as a people, this group of people sent this guy, Paphroditus, with money to Paul, and he's writing Philippians to them sort of in response. You could say that this is a thank you note for a big financial gift. If you've ever written a thank you note to a grandparent for 20 bucks or whatever, you don't then spend the whole thank you note by saying, I didn't need it. I mean, I really appreciate it, but you know I didn't need that money, right? But that's what he's doing. He's very concerned throughout the letter to make very clear that, hey, listen, I know that you're sending me this money, but I'm not speaking of being in need. And if you read through the whole of chapter 4, you'll see him say this over and over again, but it's important for him to make them know that he didn't need it, that we don't need it. In any situation whatever, we can be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound and in any in every circumstance i've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance, and need and Then he says, "I can do all things through him who strengthens me." So what I want to do in the rest of this time is I want to take a moment and look at the other places through Philippians four where he kind of brings together some of the things that come from understanding and really having this gospel message, really understanding what it is to be a believer. If God's saving grace really hits your heart and changes you, it will change you in these ways. And these things will further equip you for the work of going out there and doing this thing. So let's do it. He talks about three different places where the Holy Spirit is going to impact your life through the gospel and change you, make you more fit for the work that he has called you to. In the first place, he talks about your relationships. Then he talks about your emotions. He talks about your mind. And we're going to, with the time that we have, try to understand all three of these and the, the, the things that he says in Philippians 4. So he says in Philippians 4, starting in, verses, uh, in verse 2, he's talking about now, a way the gospel is going to impact your relationships. It says, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Some kind of interpersonal conflict going on. Now, David alluded to the fact that we have friends in the IMB, and the friends report back, That when you do mission like that, you're going to have interpersonal conflict. And it's not just run-of-the-mill stuff. It can be heavy stuff, big stuff. It's strange to me that the prayer requests I see from the field regularly talk about the way that their team works. Because their team is their family. Their team is their support structure. Their team are people that they need and that they love, and so when things happen, they have to deal with it. But boy, it's awkward. Boy, it's hard. It exposes all kinds of pride. It exposes all kinds of difficulty, and these people are not like prima donna types. I don't know who you think are the kind of people that go and do international missions in the middle of nowhere for the rest of their lives, but they tend to be somewhat, compared to you and me, humble people. And yet even them. How much more us? So as we continue through and we think about this together, I want you to think for a moment about who is your Syntyche at Hope Church. Who do you have a problem with here? Anybody? You don't have to say it out loud. That would be pretty intense. (laughs) 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 Her! Okay. But who do you have a problem with? If you don't have a problem with anybody, you probably just haven't been around very much. I love Hope Church, but we're people, and so if you're around for a while, we're going to mess stuff up. We're going to hurt you. We're people. Who do you have a problem with? Who's your Eodia? Who's your Syntyche? If you have them in your head, let's keep moving, because God gives us an incredible amount, not only of resources for forgiveness and for working with one another, he puts an incredible amount of motivation behind our need to agree in the Lord. Jesus, if if you read through his teaching, he regularly places our relationship with God sort of in jeopardy based on our relationship with others. And it's surprising. We're a very individualistic culture, and salvation is individualistic. Salvation being individualistic is part of the reason that we have an individualistic culture historically. So then, it's very difficult for us to kind of work our way back and see that the way that we relate to one another, or relate to the world, would have some level of impact on the way that we relate to God. But Jesus says, in surprising places, if you go through the Sermon on the Mount, which, if you want to introduce somebody to Christianity, take them to primary sources... And one of the best ways to do that is Sermon on the Mount. Just have them read through it with you. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now this takes a little bit of unpacking, but if you put yourself back into the context of offering sacrifices before the Lord in the Old Testament law... It's wild to think that you would have a dead animal on the altar ready to be sacrificed and remember a problem that you've got with Tim down the street and say, I'm sorry, can we wait right here? There's a line of people and lowing animals about to be slaughtered, and you would say, guys, I'm sorry, can we pause, priest? Can we pause for a moment? I've got to go deal with Tim. Seems odd seems odd that your connection with the Lord would have some connection to your connection with other people to the point that God would stop your relationship with him for a moment to say, no, 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 go and deal with this other thing. Now then, if our church doesn't choose to deal with our stuff, Tell me what that result's going to be in our relationship, our connection with the only one who gives us the power to do what he's called us to do, the one who gives us the ability to will and to work, God who works through us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Ooh, no, we've got to get this figured out. You go a little further in the Sermon on the Mount, he's got this Lord's Prayer. If you're new to Scripture and you want something to memorize, memorize the Lord's Prayer. It's short. You probably know it more than you think because it's kind of in the culture. And it's a great thing to pray. But in the Lord's Prayer, and right in the middle of it, Jesus says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What? My prayer to God about Him forgiving me is something I pray constantly. But why does it connect to our forgiveness of our debtors? He finishes the prayer by saying, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The disciples want to know how to pray in this sermon Jesus is teaching them, among many things, how to pray. And he says, pray then like this. Don't pray like that. Pray then like this. And he gives them the prayer. And then, thinking about all of that, he could teach them more about how to pray. He could zero in on any one of these incredible phrases and tell them more about, hallowed be your name, daily bread. But instead, he zeroes in on this concept. And he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Later in Matthew, in Matthew 18, you get this famous passage about um, church discipline. And then you get this moment where Peter says, well, how often should we forgive our brothers, Lord? Up to seven times. And he's trying to be very impressive as though Jesus would say like, well, Peter, not seven times. The world would stop if you had to forgive that many times. You got to cut them off after three. No, of course, Jesus replies to Peter and says, I say to you not seven times, but 70 times seven. And he talks about the wild overabundance of forgiveness that we're supposed to give one another. And then he grounds it in a parable. And he says this parable of the unforgiving servant. It's the story of a king who's calling, he's going through his accounts and he's calling up people who owe him. And he brings a servant in and this servant owes him an unimaginable amount of money. Something that nobody could pay back in a hundred lifetimes. And he says, oh, you know, master, please, will you just give me a little bit longer? Which is hilarious because, of course, you're not going to pay that back. But the master just forgives the whole debt. He just takes upon himself the loss and forgives the debt. The guy's scot-free. And he leaves. And you've got to imagine he's feeling great. Not only has he been forgiven, he's not got to pay all that back. I mean, he's probably more liquid than he's ever been. And he walks up and immediately finds another person who owes him Not no money, it's money. It's kind of a little bit of money. But it's nothing compared to what he owed the master. And he grabs that guy and says, pay back what you owe me. And the guy says, I need a little more time. Same thing that everybody says who owes you money. I just need a little more time. And instead of forgiving the guy, the guy grabs him, starts choking him and says, you got to pay back everything you owe me. And he throws him and his family into debtor's prison until he should pay back the last penny and the other servants hear about this and they go and tell the master the master calls that unforgiving servant back before him and he says you how could you i forgave all of your debt and you can't forgive his debt do you see it's connected if you've been forgiven forgive forgive If you've been forgiven your massive debt before a holy God, the kind of debt that can only be paid with the blood of Christ himself, shouldn't you be willing to forgive somebody else their petty debt against you? Shouldn't you be willing to forgive somebody's not-so-petty debt against you? Because it could be bad, like really bad but it's not cross bad. There's a difference. And if you read through and you understand what the Lord is saying to us through Philippians, you see that the humility that he is telling us to have is a humility that's reasonable because it understands that we are sinners ourselves. That's why later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For when the, with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's talking about the relative offensiveness of sin. The relative offensiveness of the debt owed to you and the debt you owe God. He's saying take the two by four out of your own eyeball before you pull the eyelash out of your brother's eyeball. What would reconciliation look like at Hope Church if we had this opinion of ourselves, this opinion of God? What if they really were awful and it didn't work when you tried to do this reconciliation? What if it got really bad? Well, Jesus is there too. He says in Luke 6, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. The gospel has incredible resources for us to make sure that we continue to pull together. As soon as you go about this work, the enemy is going to try to sow discord with you and your brothers and your sisters that are pulling in the same direction. Don't let him. Don't let him. You have models within the church, not just within the gospel. You have models within the church that I can point you to, men and women who are right now going about reconciling themselves to each other. And it's incredible. It's miraculous. He doesn't just fix your relationships. He also gives you incredible resources with your emotions. It says in Philippians 4, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Not necessarily your emotionalism tied to nothing, ginned up through loud music and fancy stories or whatever. No, things that are based on reasoned arguments, your logicalness, your reasonableness. Let it be known to everyone that the Lord is at hand. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving... Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying that the anxiety that is a pandemic, the true pandemic of our society. Ask a teacher about their students. Anybody in middle and high school. And they will tell you incredible stories about the anxiety In their kids. Our culture doesn't do great. You get real individualistic and you get really, really proud and you take away supernatural resources. All of a sudden, every individual is carrying the weight of supporting their own identity. You got to choose everything. You got to choose your sexuality. You got to choose your politics. You got to choose what you think about left, right, and center. You got to carry the weight of your own identity, but you also got to carry the weight of the world around you. Every situation that's going on, it's up to you. You got to work harder. You got to believe in yourself more. And the anxiety of that is crippling. The fear of that is overwhelming. Well, no, not in Christianity. We do have the resources to go the other way instead of proud, to go towards humility, and sort of, instead of self determined, to go towards God determined hand our difficulties off to Him because that's what He's saying here. He's saying not just pray about it more. He's saying, you don't be anxious. Reasonableness, you're thinking about this. Don't be anxious, but remember the Lord. The Lord is at hand. You're going to, by prayer and supplication, hand things over to Him and He says, with thanksgiving. So you're constantly thanking God for what is true about Him, about what He's done and about what He is doing. The Lord is at hand about what He will do you're remembering the grandeur the majesty the holiness of the holy god and you're comparing the bigness of the bigness of god with the reality of the problems that you have and between you and me they can be massive problems but compared to god your anxiety starts to fall this is where jesus talks about us being like children you ever around little babies? I was around a little baby last night. It wasn't our little baby. We're done. But it was a little, little baby. And that little baby was sitting there in just a diaper. The belly's hanging over the diaper. She's just sitting there. What happens when that little baby perceives a need, a problem? Does that baby immediately start trying to figure out how to fix the problem? Does it start whiteboarding solutions, looking at pros and cons, thinking about what's possible, kind of getting a little irritated and anxious about where the next meal is going to come from? Or does the baby cry? It just cries. And it's a kind of cry that like God has built to get down into your bones, and there's nothing you can do if you're the parent and you hear that cry. you got to deal with it. you got to deal with it right then. And the baby cries, and the baby doesn't get what the baby wants immediately. It just cries louder with snot and drool and tears and red face and red body, passionate, weeping cries. Because still the baby knows that there's one solution the father. And I'm saying the father because I'm talking about God. Clearly, in most of these situations, it's the mother. <laughs> Dads should be less selfish and, and care more. I get it. I, I, I agree, me too. But usually moms jump in there because they're kinder. But, but you cry out to the father. That's what he's saying to do here, to have that kind of trust, to have that realization of who you are and who he is. And in the reasonableness of that deduction... To watch your anxiety fall. He has resources for your relationships. He has resources for your emotions. And he has resources for your mind. He does tell you that part of your problem here is what you're thinking about. He continues in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything, uh, if there's any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He's telling you to train your mind, to feed it. What you put in there is going to have an effect. It's going to create a reaction. It's going to make your expectations, your loves, your affections shift just a little bit. And we're in a weird spot. You add to the internet streaming services, and you can kind of get whatever you might think you want to see. I mean, once upon a time, there were like censorship laws and stuff. But now that's all out the window. Every streaming service is HBO. They can show you whatever they want. If you're not careful, if you're not discerning, if you're not thinking about, if you're not choosing and valuing, What's the impact? Are you choosing to find what is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable? And if you're saying to yourself, I don't know what that would be, well, God has given you a great thing to think about. So verse 9 ends, we get to the piece about I can do all things, and then in verse 19 it says, my God will supply every need of yours according to the riches to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You want something to think about? Think about Christ. Think about what is true, what is honorable, what is pure, what is just, what is lovely, what is commendable, what is excellent, what is Christ. Have in your minds daily, regularly, a remembrance of, a valuing of, an exploration of what God has done for you through Christ. Paul clearly did. I mean, it's all over this letter. Everything he's thinking, everything he's saying is governed by what God has done for us through Christ. The idea that Christ in his life had a peace, and it's a peace that's being promised to us through Paul. He said it himself in John 14. This is the end of his ministry, the end of his life. He's saying to the disciples, as he got him in a room before he goes to get arrested and crucified, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's saying that he gives us the peace that he feels. We have to imagine that that peace is incredible, that he can sleep through storms, that he can multiply food, that he trusts the Father. But you know right after this that there is a point at which Jesus doesn't have much peace. Because when he's on a cross being crucified, he doesn't do it with a smile. There's a point from the cross where he screams in a death agony My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That doesn't sound like peace. But that's because that's the point at which he takes our sin in order to give us his peace. Because he felt that at that moment on that cross, if you choose to have him, if you choose to repent and believe in him, you never have to feel that. The peace that he has with his perfect relationship with the Father is the peace that you now inherit in your perfect relationship with the Father. This God who will support uh, supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So, are we ready? Are you ready? to do what God has called every individual Christian to engage in. The first half of the Lord's prayer, God who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Are you ready to hold that yoke? You'll find that it's light, but it is a yoke. Are you ready to hold that yoke and pull forward together with us? I pray that you'll invest in what God's given you in the gospel so that really when when that question really is asked and it's time for you, really you, to really answer it, you'll be able to say, with maybe a little bit of fear, yes. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I don't know how many models there are like Lottie Moon, people who really do give it all. But we do have models like Lottie Moon. She is evidence, Lord, that your Holy Spirit does change people and does bring them along in the same way that you brought along Paul, in the same way that he brought along Timothy, in the same way that he brought along Epaphroditus, in the same way that they brought along all of these Philippians. And then you go for a couple of millennia until you get to little people like us, Father, that you're still resourcing, that you're still teaching not to be anxious and to love one another and to be, oh Lord, to be what is commendable. I pray that you would invest that gospel into us and change us, Lord. That we would realize the magnitude of what you've called us to, but also the magnitude of what you've given us, what you've supplied us with. So that we can look at what you've called us to without anxiety, without fear, Lord. But trust you and proclaim your name. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.